Yeah. Would you like me to introduce myself in the language or do you want me to keep it in English? Could you do both? Sure, I can. Yeah. So uh, I'll introduce myself in the language first and then I'll, I'll translate into English right afterward. I guess I've got to say, In Munsi, that means, how are you? How are you feeling? More on that with Ian McCallum in a minute. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Philip Wong. And I'm Kavya Kaman. You're listening to Daybreak. Last week, we attended the second annual Munsee Delaware Story Evening, hosted by the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. The person you just heard is Ian McCallum, a member of the Munsee Delaware Indigenous Community, an educator on Indigenous peoples with the Toronto Ministry of Education, as an author of the stories we listened to during the story evening. McCallum writes bilingual stories in Munsee and English, which are then illustrated by artist Catherine Chupik Hall. Before the story evening, we sat down with McCallum and Chupik Hall to discuss the meaning behind them and the living language of Munsee. I guess I've got to say Kolamalsi, which is how are you? How are you feeling? Ian. My name is Ian. I'm from up the river, so I'm from Muncie Delaware Nation, which is located upriver on the Thames River from the other Delaware community, which is um, just south of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now So I follow the ways of the turtle. So I follow my mother's clan, which is the turtle clan. And I can say, So I work with uh, school papers in my daytime job. I work for the Ontario Ministry of Education. This is not my daytime job. So my, my, my immediately after five job, I work as a, a language teacher for Muncie, mm-hmm. Delaware. My primary passion when I went through university was I, I studied history. So I love the history of the Muncie people. And that's something I've I've always enjoyed learning more about. After that, a little bit about the history of the Muncie Delaware Nation and your sure. your place and role within it. Sure. So I, I'm I must admit I'm I'm very familiar with Muncie history that is north of the border. Um, mm-hmm. Simply because growing up on reserve, oftentimes you heard stories that dealt with mostly what was local, and my community was. I guess you could, for better word, it was established in the very early 1780s after the Muncie people left a place called the Grand River, which is uh, near the present Ontario city of Brantford. When I got to learn from the older people, they would mention things like wars with the uh, the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois people, but they didn't mention a whole lot about the journey from Lenapoking, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, you know, up the Delaware, up the Susquehanna to to Ontario. So there, those stories weren't always explained. I think what was more you know, at the time, or what was what was pressing for adults. A lot of family that worked on the railway for American railway companies. So there's a lot of stories about working on the railway back in the early 1900s, which was kind of cool too. Within the storytelling, I suppose, and the, and preparing the stories, and then giving the stories, and then holding these evenings. This is a simple question. Just what's your favorite part? Well, I guess it's having that opportunity to actually share these stories because I've always I always felt they were very important to me, and. Uh, you know, I I assumed that we all have, you know, those times in our life where we we got to sit with that older generation and learn from from them or or find out things that, you know, later on in life they go, wow, you know what? That was that was quite a moment. 
right? And I think all people can sort of relate to that. So it, it makes that sort of interesting. The storytelling session this year is going to involve, it's not actually a past story, but more of a, a current story where it tells sort of travels on the Thames River by community members within the last two years um, as a language resource. So that's that's kind of fun. And then, you know, another one is actually a story that was given by another family on the community. They wanted a story that was originally given in English, but now they want to translate it into the Muncie language. Do you find any difficulties in maintaining the sort of bilingual storytelling? And is there ever a time where you felt like something was lost in translation? I, I find it hard because I don't have a lot of people to talk to anymore. My when my colleague passed, that was my that was my support network. So I do have friends in the the other Delaware community that I reach out to. When I translate the stories, that's one thing that I do tell others when they reach out for translations. There simply isn't you know, direct translations for some English words. And, and English is a, a tricky language. I, I, it's one of the trickiest. And you're always upfront with, with those if they're asking for translations and that what could come out of this is probably going to be much deeper in terms of learning, but you'll also understand how our language worked, where it's a very descriptive language, you know, where there's, our language has a, a, a ton of verbs. It's very, it's very action-based, where we may come up short compared to English in terms of nouns. And so it's it's always that it, I guess it's it's not that surprise, but it's that wonderment when you're translating that you find out that the work that you when you finish, you had to work around in such unique ways and interesting ways to try and come across with that same or a similar to get the meaning across. So for our last question, we'd like to ask you about your thoughts on the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, being situated on land that is the ancestral homeland of the Lenapewak people, and what efforts do you think they can continue to make? So I, I, I look at it, you know, I know the IAS is is on my homeland, but, uh, you know, I attend the University of Toronto, which is on the territory of the Mississaugas people. And I always think that most places start with their land acknowledgement, but um, it's doing the deeper learning of, so what does that mean that you're on the land of the Lenape people? How will that reflect in the opportunities that students have within your, you know, your hallowed halls, your four walls of the classroom? Will they have access to courses about the Lenape people? in all equality to uh, like an American history course, right? Like the the amount of learning that could be done with the Penn Treaty and, the, you know, first contact, diving into the rich culture of how the people used um, New Jersey prior to, you know, the, the settlement from uh, from Europeans. I think that's, that's where institutions can be so very helpful. And I think, you know, members of the IAS have been very instrumental in that where they're reaching out to community to support them in their initiatives to get that increased learning in, right? And that's, that's similar with universities up here where, uh, you know, the development of Indigenous courses for, you know, for undergrads or grads, the establishment of Indigenous student uh, support, student associations, bringing in those guest speakers and, and sort of developing programs too, right? We've got an in, a whole Indigenous studies education program or, or multiple programs where, where students have the opportunity. After we spoke with McCallum, we spoke with Chupik Hall, who is not Muncie, but has been illustrating for the Muncie community for several years. My name is Catherine. I'm a first year student at Emily Carr. I'm the illustrator or one of the one of the illustrators that Ian works with on his Muncie language projects. So actually, could you tell us a little bit about the art that you make in collaboration with the nation and in collaboration with Ian and your process of making it? 
Yeah, totally. So I'm a digital artist. I work like mostly digitally when it comes to like class stuff. Obviously, I work less so, but mostly in terms of Muncie, Delaware, I work digitally. It's a lot easier to transfer all the files and make mm-hmm. stuff that's sort of appealing, like a lot more resources. I would say that like I mostly like research and thumbnail first. Like, so I'll have kind of a vague idea of what I'm going to be doing and then put it down like really quickly. And then a lot of research. I know in terms of the graphic novel Ian and I have been doing, there's a lot of like researching about the time period. There's a lot of like very specific, like I'll I'll email a page and Ian will be like, no, point at something like tiny in the background that like isn't time period accurate. I'm like, oh my God. We talked to Ian about the importance of oral storytelling and mm-hmm. how he heard many stories from his grandparents. And uh, so we wanted to ask you, how do you think visuals can supplement Indigenous oral history? supplement I don't think so and this is sort of like a debate I've had with myself like an ethical you know dilemma that I've thought up where I'm like am I sort of taking away from this like very rich oral history by bringing this very like westernized way of art into it and I think that like the sad truth is that within these times a lot of people like to to be able to reach more people with the language and even to be able to reach more people within the community with the language I know I've met people within my community who have you know been Muncie Delaware and haven't attempted reconnection with the language until they've attended you know Ian's events and like read a lot of the books and like seen like all of the incredible work he's doing I think that like you know there's there's this societal conditioning now where a lot of people have been not a lot of people are connecting with their oral oral history and to be able to even understand the oral history of course like there needs to be some tie to the language and I think yeah that a lot of people have this modern way of taking in information and consuming narratives I want to help reach those people so that they can participate in the oral history so that they can begin to connect with the community but not to take away from the oral history not to replace it not to modern Keeping Chupacall and McCallum's thoughts in mind, we attended the story evening. McCallum and Chupacall shared three books that they worked on, detailing how they came up with the ideas, the process, and the beauty of the spoken language itself. The first story is about fishing on the river and a hard day's work. McCallum read it in Muncie while we followed along in English on the page. Chupacall's illustrations of the fish and the historical settings were cartoonishly enticing, yet were perfect in the details. Chupacall explained that she was very careful to draw the fish and the plants correctly, rather than the, quote, first thing that came up on Google Images. The second story was called Kiss of the First Snow, and like the title suggests, followed the coming of winter through protagonist John, spelled J-O-H-N, or in Muncie, John spelled N-J-A-N. The Kiss of the First Snow, I've not translated the title yet, because that needs to be discussed with the family. Wimbat Kalak Asu, Piska Yaskwa Kalishmish, Tengi Kanesh, Wak John Matakawil. McCallum again read in Munsi while we followed along in English. After the story, McCallum pointed out how some of its language demonstrates the challenge of translating between English and Munsi. There was one point in which John is said to, quote, debate with himself, but debate isn't a word in Munsi. And the Muncie expression goes something more to the tune of thinking to oneself. The title of the third story translates to 
I tell a great story. It told the tale of Arnold Logan, an indigenous World War I soldier and one of the only indigenous people involved in the war. The story's title is in the first person because it is told from Arnold's perspective. At the end, McCallum paused to share a sincere moment with the audience. He explained that even though he was not a fluent speaker of Muncie, as he only learned it from listening to older generations, he is still hopeful that the language will live on and evolve. I forgot to mention that uh, you may hear as I read that I have second language tendencies. So Muncie, while I learned it when I was a kid from people who spoke in my house, I'm not a fluent speaker. So I think you'll find that there's things that are missing and, and I'll pronounce words incorrectly, but, and there's lack of intonation. And that's a piece that I think as a second language person, I'm going to, you know, have to work at till like, till I'm gone, but it's something that's worth a challenge. So those are things that you'll pick up from the speaking part of things. Writing in the language is actually like having somebody with you. I don't know how to describe that, but uh, Muncie language is one of those endangered languages that the UN has acknowledged. And with very few first language speakers and very few second language speakers, uh, writing is actually sort of that, that person in the room with you where you're working out things that you're trying to say. Uh, at times you're saying them to yourself, right? So everything sounds good when you're saying it to yourself, but it's also really nice to be able to share it tonight because I'm going back and going, oh, man, maybe an error is error there. Maybe I'll go back and I'll, I'll take a look at that. And it's, it's a living document as opposed to a one and done. And I think that's the lovely difference of working with an Indigenous times when you're working with academic papers, right? It's like, it's out the door, right? How many times with the university student, I'm done. This essay is finished. I'm never going to see it again. Right? Whereas if I work in the language and I'm writing things in the language, it's a living document that, that needs to go back and, and have some work done on it to make it, um, you know, make it closer in terms of translation or to be able to say the, the appropriate thing. That's all for Daybreak Today. Today's episode was written by Philip Wong and me, sound engineered by Philip Wong, and produced under the 147th Managing Board of the Prince. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Kavya Kamath. And I'm Philip Wong. Have a wonderful day.